0: The Fake Show is brought to you by Threads of Envy, the law firm of Hutchison & Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-Shirt Designs, and by Mr. Antenna. Now your host,
1: Jim Tofty. You might not have heard of him, but Peter Shapiro is a powerhouse in the music industry, a man widely considered as the top independent concert promoter since Bill Graham. He helped put on some 10,000-plus shows, working with the likes of U2, Bob Dylan, Robert Plant, The Roots, Al Green, and probably most importantly, The Grateful Dead. He also took over or created clubs like The Wetlands and Brooklyn Bowl. He talks about all of that in his new book, The Music Never Stops, and I've got Peter Shapiro on the line right now from New York City.
0: Jim, how are you, buddy? I'm
1: great, Peter. Welcome. Congratulations on your great book and and a life well lived. Obviously, Well, I'm still in it. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not not to say and that I'm you're still, retiring. I just
0: know what I'm dealing <laughs> with right now. But it's got you. Know, the more you know, the daytime part's harder. But then at night, you get to go. Uh, you get to go to a lot of shows, so it's pretty good.
1: Yeah, and when you look back at uh, your beginnings, which would be Northwestern University, you're going to school, and you see a Grateful Dead show at the Rosemont Horizon, one of my favorite places to see a concert, by the way, and it it sort of changes your life, right?
0: Yes, I went to that show in March of 93, a Grateful Dead show, and uh, they added a special spoken word guest. up in the parking lot of the Dead show. It was snowing and the kids around me were not going back to Northwestern. They were going back on the school bus, you know, drum circles and right. school buses and circus traveling America and uh, I was just like, wow, you know? And I went on the road to make a film about it. I just never seen anything like it. And video cameras were going then and I was a film student I found another kid and I was like, he had the video camera. I was like, let's go for a few weeks with your camera. We'll rent a van. You know, one thing we learned, we rented an all-white Ford Econoline van, you know, with no windows. And I learned we pulled up to the first day of our making this little film, two kids. We'd show up at the Palace in Detroit, Auburn Hill, in this all-white van with no windows. And uh, we pull into the parking lot, and everyone's like, D-E-A, D-E-A. All
1: the <laughs> Very suspicious.
0: We got to keep moving, keep driving, keep going. We drove like a couple blocks and then walked back. Someone listening, looking to make a documentary about the Grateful Dead or something, don't show up in an all white van with no windows.
1: No, that's, you're either, you're on one side of the law or the other with that particular van, I think. You're right. So, how do you get to the point where. Still in your 20s, you opened the Wetlands in in New York because uh, that's a pretty legendary club. Right. Well, actually,
0: that one, some of these venues in the Brooklyn Bowl near you, you know, in Vegas, I built, but the Wetlands, I took over, it opened in 89, and uh, I actually took it over in 96, I was 23, and the owner... But bringing it back to what we talked about, he saw that film we talked about, the Grateful Dead documentary. He was a deadhead. He saw it and he was like, "You understand what I want to do here at Wetlands, which is to create a vibe and a scene and a community, in addition to the music." And he was like, "If you create, if you continue that, I'll give it to you, and you can pay me every month a payment." I swear, he kind of gave me the club Wetlands, and I paid him every month. And, uh, but my gig was I had to continue his mission. He had like a whole environmental center with the club and just the general thing. And so all of a sudden I'm 23 years old and, uh, I own one of the great rock clubs in America, really. And, uh, it's a good way to grow up quickly.
1: And the Brooklyn Bowl, kind of an extension of that, I would assume.
0: Exactly. You got it. Like I learned a lot at Wetlands about vibe and like partly because the club did not have great sight lines so we had to work harder at creating a vibe and a scene because not everyone, when it was sold out, not everyone could see the show and all that right. stuff. So, <laughs> <that's an issue. laughs> well, you know, if you're putting on shows and not everyone can see the show, you know, that's not necessarily ideal. So the Broken Ball was, hey, let's take that vibe. We were able to create a wetlands that everyone going loved it, even if they couldn't see the show. They, we created a great environment to hang at the bar or the basin, you could hear it everywhere but wetlands we're like we should have everyone be able to see the show and have good air conditioning because we had no air yeah those are early things and we added like you know from brooklyn ball a little bit the food and the, the bowling and the lanes and the screens and we did it in new york and it popped and actually going to vegas ended up Seeing this crazy opportunity that came about and uh, about 10 years ago. I'm glad I grabbed it and said, let's go for it. Center Strip, let's do it.
1: Yeah, it's a great place here, that's for sure. By the way, when you're running the Wetlands, you're doing this in the 90s. You've, Let's say you've got a last-second show to promote. How does one do that pre-social media? That's
0: a great question. It's harder. You, yeah. Now with the social media, it's much easier to pop up last second. What we used to do, we'd call you. We would go on the radio. right? We would make flyers and hit shows, but we would really look for radio and announce it. Now, you know, so I was at Wetlands in 96, you know, and I remember, maybe it was 98, 99, we did a big Hootie and the Blowfish. I think it was around like the first ESPN Awards in New York and they decided they wanted to do a last minute show. And we were calling the radio station to announce it, maybe the Q one hundred four or something, and and flyering. There was no Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or you know TikTok. And and by the way, when I opened Brooklyn Bowl in two thousand nine in New York, we opened in Vegas in fourteen. You know, there was no like TikTok and Snap, especially in oh nine. Uh, it just keeps evolving, and in some ways, technology's good. You know, it helps you do a last second show. You can spread the word faster. But I'll give you a quick thing. In the old days, at wetlands, there was the Village Voice. It was print, like the Las right. Vegas Weekly. Everyone read it. Everyone read it, and it had a music section. And there's like ten pages of the ads of all the venues in the city. And by reading that, you got it every Tuesday night. You knew after five, ten minutes of glancing at all those ads and all the shows in the town and everything. That's a lot harder. We don't have that in New York, The
1: Voice anymore. Certainly one of your greatest achievements, if not your greatest, is Fare Thee Well, um, a series of concerts. It was legendary. It marked the 50th anniversary of The Dead with stadium shows in Santa Clara and Chicago uh, Soldier Field. Did it feel like a risk to you? Because that those are a lot of seats to fill.
0: Yeah, I, the idea of take, for me, though, no, because I'm a deadhead, and I just know how many deadheads there actually are. I can feel it. And the idea of taking Trey and Anastasio from Fish, putting him in the Jerry spot to play with the surviving members with Mickey and Billy and Phil and Bobby, to me, I knew was one plus one is eight. Yeah. Just be magic. So that was just my belief, really. It was like I grew up a Fish kid and a dead guy, and I just knew that putting that together and... uh Fortunately, it was right, you know, that it was real, you know, there were, and you don't really know. I mean, one thing that's tough about this thing, and I still deal with it every day. is like, you kind of don't know until you go on sale, you know, and that's why every band, even the big ones, when you call the agent, the manager, you know, after the on sale, it's like, we're, we're clean, you know, we're sold out. They still are like, yeah, you know, no one's like, oh, I knew that, you know. I still think, you know, and especially all we've been through with COVID and everything and the ups and the downs, you know, and uh, you just go with your gut. You know, I've learned a lot from doing so many shows, so hopefully my gut's pretty good, um, although doing tray with the dead, you know. I had a pretty strong feeling on that one.
1: Yeah, the Dead and Company, those shows. That was certainly a new beginning post Jerry Garcia. Now you reveal in the book that you're hoping to reunite the surviving members of the Dead one more time in 2025. How's that looking?
0: Well, we'll see. I just kind of put that out. You know, certainly the 50th and 15 was incredible, and there's been. It was supposed to kind of be the end, an ending, and it became a new beginning, like you said with Dead and Co. And there's Phil I'm about to do Nine Nights at Phil last year at the Capitol Theater in New York nice. in October so he's still rolling and you know in three years we'll see where everyone's at but you know if the world could use the 60th anniversary you know I'd lean I I'd say let's go try it again
1: and you would know Peter Shapiro's book The Music Never Stops it's available at Amazon and wherever you buy your books can't wait to dig into that Peter a pleasure talking to you stay well I mean, he is a guy who ran away with the rock and roll circus and was so instrumental in keeping the Grateful Dead name going on stage. When Jerry Garcia died in 1995, that's when Peter went into the business and carried the torch. Interesting insight, too, on a future Dead show, maybe. Well, that does it for this episode of The Fake Show Podcast. I'm Jim Tofty. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.